This is your host, Aaron Tomlinson. If you're watching this live or by replay, thank you. I appreciate you taking your time to spend with me. Hope everybody had good uh, Christmas or holidays, New Year's. Hope uh, 2024 is going okay for you to start out with. Took a little bit of time away from the channel so I could spend some time with family and just relax. But alas, I am back. <laughs> Let's see. Just trying to find the chat, <clears throat> the chat feature here. So I had a great topic for today. I was really excited about uh, coming on and talking about it. Going to kick off the new year with something. And that's going to be really encouraging for you and really empowering for you and give you some tools to approach if you have New Year's resolution or just however you want to approach your new year. And then uh, I woke up this morning <laughs> and it just like poof, vanished. <laughs> no. Um, so. One of the challenges that I used to have as a pastor was having to come up with, um, and we, you know, I got into it decades ago and was part of a group where we had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Bible studies, workshops, seminars. I mean, we kept you busy coming to church for sure. <laughs> and, uh, and so one of the things that was challenging was to, consistently come up with topics or messages or themes or um, something that would keep people engaged or keep people interested. And there would be many times I would get up and say, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about today. <laughs> and it wasn't for lack of preparation. It's just, it's a challenge. You should try it. And um, so, you know, my mind just hasn't been on a lot of this stuff the last couple of weeks. Like I said, been spending time with just relaxing, uh, doing some things to work on my own New Year's resolutions and commitments that I have. And uh, so I just wasn't able to land on a topic for this morning. I've got several ideas of various different things running through my head. And I thought if enough people jumped on, I can see comments in the chat. Let's see. Um, Marietta says, good morning. Randy says, good morning. Uh, Joyce O says, grand rising from Alabama. Um, thank you all for jumping on. But uh, sometimes it's fun to engage and do something and answer type stuff. And um, so I thought I'd just kind of jump on here and share where my headspace has been the last few days. And uh, going into 2024, I am looking forward to, uh, you know, everybody says that. Everybody says, hey, I'm looking forward to a good year. Um, a lot of people start out with good intentions or whatever. And, of course, we know, and I've said this before, there is no magic. There's nothing magical to a date, to a change of a year from one to the next, from 2023 to 2024. Now, granted, um, <laughs> certain years present bigger challenges than other years because this is an election year, at least if you live in the United States. And I don't know if it can get any crazier. I suppose that it can. And um, and one of the things, you know, I'm pretty convinced that most people that are going to vote 
uh, are already very entrenched in their positions. And so, you know, I don't think we're going to convince anybody with arguing. We're definitely not going to convince anybody with our Facebook posts. <laughs> uh, probably to change their mind. Um, and we have done something in this country that I never really thought could happen, and that is that we have really demonized each other. We've demonized each other. And so I want to start out talking about that. And then if uh, I see some engagement and stuff going on in the chat, <clears throat> then I'll uh, I'll respond to some of that. But, you know, we are, gosh, guys, for as much, and I love the spiritual community. I do. I'm part of the spiritual community. I could have left the spiritual community altogether. Um, I love learning about spirituality. I have faith in humanity still, kind of, sort of. <laughs> Um, no, I really do. But dang it, let's just be honest. When we look around at things, we're not that far removed from, you know, just coming out of the trees or just coming out of the caves in terms of how we relate to each other, how we relate to one another and our tribes that we get into. And tribalism really is a byproduct of evolution in terms of the necessity for survival. At least going back into the hunter-gatherer years, to the agricultural age, and certainly the entire, let's just say, age of Pisces, right? We had to have our tribe because we had to, you know, protect our food, protect our resources, let's say it that way, protect our resources from other uh, groups that wanted to come and raid them and take them. Um, let's see, Mark says, I have a topic, maintaining awareness in a world that brings you down. Not far from the topic you're now discussing. I like that. I like that. If we don't get into that, I'm going to write that one down, keep that in mind, so uh, I can do one down the road. But you see what I'm saying? Like, we needed to connect with uh, our tribe, our group, in order to protect our resources, in order to survive. And then we did a lot of othering as well. And uh, I remember when the pandemic started, I read a research paper about this theory that, you know, it was things like the, the Black Plague or leprosy, if you go back farther, you know, these really, really, really deadly diseases that caused a lot of othering because, you know, they didn't understand germs. They didn't understand disease processes and things like that. And so someone from that tribe made us sick. So we kind of other and we have this infighting and all this stuff. And so all this to say, we're not that evolved. We like to think, I mean, we, we just, especially in America, and let's just be honest, the spiritual community is a little bit narcissistic. Uh, it attracts people who are a little bit narcissistic. Um, have narcissistic traits, and that's that's a term that gets thrown around a lot too, that is misused and abused on here. So I hesitate to even bring that up. But but there's this element of tribalism that we have, and so to bring groups together, it's often effective if there is a common enemy, if there's a common other, if there's a common cause, but not just a common cause. 
a common enemy out there that we are striving against, that we are working against. And so in my lifetime, you know, or going back even to like my grandparents, right? So you got World War One, World War Two. That's my grandparents' era. You got the Nazis, and then right after that, you have the communists, right? And yeah, there was McCarthyism, and there was, you know, finger pointing. You're always going to have that where, you know, these people are communists, these people are, you know, whatever. But the enemy was clearly out there and infiltrating from within. At least that was the perception that was created in order to gin up this kind of stuff, right? And then once the Cold War ended at the end of the 80s, we needed a new enemy. And so the invasion of Kuwait, Middle East, Iraq, Iran, you know, attention has turned that direction. And then 9-11 happens. And so that brings us all together, sort of, (laughs) to go after this common enemy. So campaigns would be directed towards enemies that were out there, enemies that were on other sides of the border, even even in 2016, you know, it was the border issue. The enemies out there, the enemies coming in from without. Now we live in an environment since 2020 happened. <laughs> Remember 2020? <laughs> we had um, COVID-19. We had shutdowns. We had, you know... George Floyd killed on TV in front of our eyes. Then we had riots. Then we had a crazy election. Then we had January 6th, right? I mean, that one year, there was so much that was packed into that one year that was hard to deal with. It was, uh, it, it, it was pretty intense. And it seems like now, you know, all of the fighting in American politics. I didn't plan on making this political. But all of the fight, I don't know why I'm doing this, but all of the fighting in American politics is othering the other that's our neighbors, you know, because you vote a certain way or you lean politically or ideologically a certain way, then You're the enemy. You're the enemy. You're the problem. You're the one that needs, that we need to fix in order to fix this. Let's see, this person says, this is synchronicity. I stumbled on a video this morning that addresses this very topic. It isn't about non-dualism. It's about raising vibration. True light workers are not escaping to oneness. True workers are doing their best in their wheelhouse to make it more positive, sensitive, and kind of world. Great. Great comment. But I'm going to add this. Part of the problem, as I see it, with this whole othering thing, and I'll get into it and tie it in with Christianity, is the apocalyptic nature of a lot of New Age teaching and a lot of stuff that lightworkers, including people who used to be really good friends of mine, that I think have completely and utterly lost their minds and gone completely off the edge, which I never thought would happen. Um, 
but this sort of apocalyptic world mission. Um, we're out to make the world uh, better because we're fighting an evil force. There's an evil oppressive force out there and we're fighting it. And that's, that's such a cheap thing to do because yes, of course there's evil in the world. I mean, one of the problems, one of the reasons lots of us deconstructed is the problem of evil. You know, why does a good God allow bad things to happen? And it sucks. It sucks that, uh, there's so many terrible things that happen in this world and we want simple and easy answers. Like for a lot of people, when we start forecasting uh, conspiracies or we start forecasting a future. Um, we get the feeling right. We get the sense right. It's almost like we get, we get the problem right, but then we oversimplify the answers or we oversimplify the solutions. And so this leads to a lot of infighting because part of the reason that this has taken root in our country is because since at least the late 70s um, with Within the evangelical Pentecostal churches, um, there was a constant steady diet of end-time prophecy teaching, at least since the late great planet Earth. Like, it became a cottage industry for the church. And so you had, you had prophecy charts, you had, you know, we're using the book of Revelation as our book. But there's a framework within Western culture that this embedded within the collective unconscious that is very black and white, very dualistic, very light and dark. And that darkness is going to rise and take over the world. And it's the job of the people of the light to resist that, to put up a resistance for it. Uh, and then, of course, we're inundated with movies like Star Wars series and, you know, stuff like this. But this idea that there's a dark oppressive force out there and we are of the light and we are working towards some great cosmic purpose. Like we were taught in the church, like we were taught with the end time teaching and end time Bible prophecy. There's something very seductive about that. There's something that can really hook your ego with that if you're not careful. And it can be very, very seductive. And it can gin up a lot of stuff in the name of light or in the name of God or in the name of raising vibration or in the name of working towards a better place. I mean, watch some of these documentaries on cults that, you know, HBO Max has done. And one thing they all have in common is they're fighting for a cause that is that is global, that is cosmic, that is world changing, that's going to, you know, herald in a new age, that's going to bring about social changes, that's going to cause the world to become the kind of place that we want it to be. And so all of us want the world to be a certain way, and the world doesn't cooperate. And we all have to deal with that. That's part of the challenge. Um and somebody up here said uh you know, how do we maintain awareness? How How is maintain awareness in a world that brings you down? Well, the first step to that is to realize the world ain't like you want it to be, and it ain't going to become like you want it to be. Like one of the best revelations I ever got was the world was fucked up when I got here. It was fucked up before I got here, and it's going to be fucked up when I leave. 
like so much energy spent trying to change a world that does not want to change. And then you try to force that change because now you're coming from a place of good. You're coming from a place of godliness. You're coming from a place of righteousness. You have the right message. You have the right tools. You have the right things that can help people heal or help people raise their vibrations. And all that stuff is great. I think we do need to go out and we need to live uh, our lives in the way that makes sense to us. And if the way that makes sense to you is like me, the way that makes sense to me is I want to share tools. I want to share information. I want to encourage people. I want to help other people better their lives. I want to help other people uh, improve their lives, improve their situation. I want to help other people live authentically, right? That's why I do some of the stuff I do. Now, that's not the only thing I want to do. It's not my obsession. It's not. It's more like a hobby at this stage. Um, well, except that I'm a therapist. <laughs> so anyway, it's a big part of my life, right? It's a big part of my life, but I'm under no delusions or pressure to go out there and try to change the world. And that's one of the baits. That's one of the baits of cults. That's one of the baits of of ginning up stuff. You can look at any fascist movement historically that you want to, and almost all of them had this sort of element to it, this sort of element to it, this, this whole idea of a super race of being or moving humanity to the next past the next point of evolution or um etc <laughs> right you see what i'm saying so you become susceptible to that kind of stuff and so one of the things that we were taught and that was fed to us constantly and consistently in end time bible preaching was this rise of the antichrist this rise of corruption in government, in world government. Um, and also this apostasy that was going to happen in the church, this great falling away, this great end time deception that's coming, that if it were possible, even the deceived would, even the elect would be deceived. Um, you know, God, in Second Thessalonians, it says God would send them a mighty delusion that they would believe a lie, that they would, they believe a lie. And so the seeds were being planted for apostasy to happen within the church. To happen within the community for it to be your neighbor. You know, I remember being taught preached at, you know, there's coming a day where Christians are going to turn on each other, where neighbors going to turn in neighbor and, and, um, you know, a uh, family member is going to turn on a family member and they're quoting scriptures that I don't even remember where they're at now. But that stuff got seeded for decades, right? That stuff got seeded for decades. And so it really just took something like a year like 2020 to sort of light the counter peg, light the powder keg, light the powder keg. So a lot of people were prepped for conspiracy theories around the pandemic or conspiracy theories around the vaccine or conspiracy theories around the election. Like we were, we were peppered with it. Now in the new age, I saw a lot of the same thing, only instead of it being necessarily a devil, although they would talk about luciferic spirits, but it would be, you know, 
the aliens that have been enslaving us for years. And there's going to be some massive revolt that's going to overthrow the aliens. But again, it's like, and and this is something that, you know, I'm not sure. I, I do believe we're moving from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius, but I'm not sure that the age of Aquarius is going to be all that we think it is. As wonderful as we think it is. Uh, because one of the things that's interesting, you can look at the element that rules the signs. And Pisces obviously was a water sign. It was two fish. And it began, you know, 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago, whatever it was. Or, you know, we still got 600 years to go before the change, whatever. I don't, I don't want to get into all that. But we traveled by sea. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> by water, rivers determining borders, oceans determining borders for countries. And we fought over land. Aquarius actually is an air sign, even though it sounds like it's a water sign, it's an air sign. And it's one of the reasons I believe that we are in the age of Aquarius, because all of the because we went from traveling by water to traveling by air to communicating through the airwaves and stuff like that, right? And air has to do with your thinking, your ideologies. And so the battles and the wars that are being fought, while there's still going to be battles fought for land, we're fighting internally with all this sort of verbal violence towards one another over ideologies, over ideas. And it's really scary. And social media has made it easy to just go out and take punches at people verbally. You know, just take shots at them. And I've, I've done it, especially when I was angry and deconstructing, uh, you know, but I haven't done it in a long time. I made a video that like, we need to, we need to quit. We need to quit with just, we're talking to each other, especially in the deconstruction community. Like we're just, we're, we're putting out aggressive posts, demeaning posts with demeaning attitudes towards people who believe differently than us. Doing it in a really sharp, aggressive, sort of violent way. And that's contributing to the energy, if you will, that can build up and eventually become and explode into physical violence, something else, right? So one of the things, one of my goals for, we talked about this on Freeology Friday, one of my goals for 2024 is a return to civility <laughs> and manners and things like that. Let's see, Joyce says, that illusion is separation, that there is a wrathful God. I question the New Testament for many reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a ton there to unpack. Like I didn't even have a chance to unpack how like we got fed this constant diet that the other person. So, so in other words, if you break with the doctrine, right? If you break with the faith, I'm talking about Christianity. If you break with the doctrine, if you break with the faith, it's not just a disagreement. It's not just that you maybe backslid. 
It's not that you're a sheep that's wandered astray and we should, should go and pursue you. It's not that, you know, I mean, there's these great scriptures like, if any one of you is caught in a fault, they that are spiritual should restore with such one in a spirit of meekness, considering your own self, lest you also be tempted. Like, in other words, don't come to them arrogantly. Don't come to them verbally attacking them. Don't come to them, uh, you, you know, come to them with meekness. And the word there, the word picture there for restore is to, like, restore broken bones. So it has this healing component to it. It doesn't have this shaming sort of component to it. But that doesn't. That's not part of the ideology. The ideology now is if you break the faith or you break with the faith, that you are on the side of evil, that you're on the side of darkness, that you're on the side of Satan, see? Um, and so now we're deciding who's good and who's evil, who's light and who's darkness based on ideologies or based on conspiracy theories, based on things that we've been told, based on things that we've been taught. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Somebody sent me, uh, back in 2020, somebody sent me a Q video. And they said, oh, you've, you gotta watch this. And I turned it on and I felt such a dark seductive energy coming from the video that I immediately turned it off. And I said within myself, I said, no, I'm gonna go ahead and watch it. And there was something inside me that said, if you watch it, you're gonna get sucked in. And it's seductive and it's very, very dark and it's very, very evil. And I believe that to the core of my being. I believe that to the core of my being, and I'll probably upset some of my subscribers and followers because you so passionately believe in it. But I think it is a, it, I think it is seductive. I think it's wrong. I think to assume based on these things that have no credibility because the story changed. I watched it in 2020. It changed just with the pandemic. Oh, it's 5G. It's 5G. No, it's a bioweapon. Um, no, it's, uh, it, it, you know, if it's a bioweapon, you might want to take some measures against it. Uh, no, it's no worse than the flu. I mean, it's just, it's just a, it's a ruse by our own government to shut us down and oppress us. Like, like they couldn't get their story straight. Like it changed every six weeks or something like that. And it's sad. It's sad to see people falling into that because it's caused so much division, so much tribalism, so much. But but see, here's my point. We get the feeling right, but then we fill in the blanks with all this stuff because we we need answers for the feeling, the feeling of discomfort. If 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 you were to scroll down, if you were to take the time to scroll down on my uh feed, right after the you know the shutdown the this video is probably going to get taken down from YouTube. I just, I just realized <laughs> with all the things I'm talking about. Um, but you know, with, with all this, all this stuff that was going on and I did a video and I said, there's going to be a scapegoating mechanism that's going to come into play. In other words, people are going to be so uncomfortable and have so much angst and have so much anger inside themselves, they're going to need some place to put it, and they're going to look for a scapegoat that they can take their frustrations out on. And I even predicted, I said, we're going to see riots, we're going to see infighting, we're going to see, you know, all this stuff. And so that's what I mean by, like, the feeling is a certain thing, right? The feeling is, like, something's not right in this world. There's injustices in this world. There are powers much bigger than me 
that are making it harder for me to get ahead, that don't want me to get ahead. There are powers bigger than me that don't want me to discover my own power. And it's all over resources, frankly, right? Because we're still tribal. We're not that evolved. We're not that ascended. (laughs) You know, guaranteed. People are listening (laughs) on our devices and whatever, tracking, all that stuff. It's there. It's just I don't buy the narrative. I think it's much, much, much more complicated than that. Um, Let's see. Randy says we can only work on ourselves. Mark says got to be mindful of what we consume. Exactly. Solis says it seems like a lot of the end-time prophecy has become self-fulfilling, where people see problems in the world as just a consequence of the end times, and therefore it's just inevitable. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a good point. Uh, Monica says, are you saying that while some of it may be true, it's the story and the attachment that is the darkness? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, absolutely what I'm saying. Um, and you got to look at, like, how much mental and emotional energy are you putting into this stuff, too. So, like, there are things in the world that are that suck, that are true, that you and I aren't going to fix. You and I aren't going to change. It doesn't matter how much we try to convince our neighbors or how much we share on Facebook or how many conferences we go to or how much money we donate. Like, it just, it just is what it is. And part of our problem is, is that we have a very hard time accepting that the world is not like we want the world to be. And so we put out this resistance. And the less reconciled we are within ourselves, and perhaps the more suffering that we've individually endured, or the more we feel entitled. You see, it could go both ways. We've either had a lot of suffering, and it's messed us up, or we feel entitled for the world to be the way we want it to be. The world is not like I want it to be, and I'm entitled for it to be like I want it to be. And so, therefore, see? (laughs) And then we put out all this, this energy, and all this, yeah, you said it exactly, all this attachment See, Angie says, when you implant those beliefs into a child, it happened to me, no matter how good your intentions are, it leaves a lasting scar. I don't want to blame people, but it is traumatic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's that's the whole thing with religious trauma, right? Um, it is traumatic. Joyce says, uh, only if that, whoa, let's see, only if that energy is fed, energy has proven I took place in an experiment that proved love and compassion. Energy can have a definite effect on the world. Check Heart Math Institute. Okay, Joyce, I'm glad you brought that up because I wrote two dissertations on the Heart Math Institute um, uh, academically uh, on their research. Um, so I did my first one back in 2008, and then I did my entire master's thesis on that research. Um, so I've been very involved, actually, with Heart Math. Uh, both using it, using it with clients and, uh, the latest re- research in scholastic, scholastically. I mean, it was my master's thesis. My entire master's thesis was on love and compassion. And I didn't just use heart math, but they were a main, uh, source of that. And one of the things that, um, they used to point to, it's, it's been a while since like this may not be hot off the presses, but there have been experiments that have been done where, 
uh, one of them was really famous in um, the Middle East, like in the 80s or during the Carter administration, where they went into areas and they had massive groups of people uh, hold uh, compassionate energy, hold peaceful energy. And then statistically, um, there was like a ceasefire. There were fewer people killed, fewer people in car accidents, less violence, less crime, all that stuff. So, yeah, absolutely we can affect. But here's the thing. As soon as that group left, see, here's the problem. As soon as that group left the city, it started up again. So while enough people can get together to hold an energy that can keep that stuff in check, the moment they quit meditating, this is true. I mean, this is a part of the science they don't tell you about. The moment they, they left, everything just went back to the way it was before. <laughs> so it's not, so for me, I'm speaking for myself, it is not an answer to the world's problems. It is not a solution to the world's problems. Now, it is an answer and a solution to your health and my health, and we can share that with other people. I mean, one of the things that's shown in the heart math research is that the you, you carry um, antibodies in your saliva, and it's sort of the first round of defense, if you will, in uh, <clears throat> against sickness and disease. And so HeartMath did, you know, a number of experiments where they took samples of people's saliva and they looked at the amount of antibodies in their saliva. And then they had them access these states. And if they accessed the state of anger, the uh, <clears throat> there was fewer of these antibodies in the saliva. If they access a, a state of thanksgiving, gratitude, or a state of compassion, there were more antibodies in this saliva. And so the idea is that the more I can access compassion and gratefulness, the more I'm raising my immune system. And so I believe in all of that. I believe in the mind-body connection. I believe that it can help us emotionally. I believe that it can help us physically. But I don't believe it's going to save the world or change the world because the data is not there. In fact, the data indicates that it doesn't because you'd have to have a group of people meditating all the time to keep all that stuff in check. But I still think it's great tools. Great. And thank you for bringing it up. It's awesome. Um, we have one of their random number generators and it has been lit up constantly over the past few weeks. I understand we have to get into a constant state of love and of compassion. Um, I'm curious, Joyce, why you think it has to be a constant state. I guess you think it has to be a constant state to change the world. Maybe, I don't know, because that's what I'm saying. Um, but I don't think human beings were meant to live in a constant state of love and compassion. Um, that's just me. Um, anyway, thanks thanks for the, the comments and engagement. It, it kind of brought me back to some of that research and stuff that I did um, back in 08 and 2011. It's fun stuff, good stuff. And there's other groups out there besides... Uh, HeartMath that have done a lot of really good research on mind-body connection and how our states impact and affect us both positively and negatively. Um, so let's come back to this idea of othering people. <laughs> uh, and the enemy within. Um, so I don't know, you know, like, I guess that's all I have to say. I guess that's all I have. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. All right, so let's come back to tribalism. 
one of the things, oh, let's see. Angie says, how does a scared person who has no support besides Internet resources heal? There seems to be too many tools. Amen, Angie. I agree with you 100%. There are too many tools. And there are too many people out for um, our support or following or money. Um, how does a scarred person, sorry. How does a scarred person who has no support besides the Internet? Here's the thing um, that I would say. One of the things that happened with me in when I began to deconstruct, when I began to do my own trauma work and my own shadow work, um, there's a proverb in the Bible where Jesus is at his hometown of Nazareth and he reads from the prophet Isaiah and the people kind of, they're like, how can you be the Messiah? You know, like we grew up with you. We went to school with you. Aren't you Mary's boy? Didn't our kids play together? And they kind of rejected him. And he says this, he says, surely you will say to me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Physician, heal thyself. And I became a really, that became like a theme for me. Because one of the things that we do is codependence, and I definitely have a lot of codependent traits. One of the things that we do is we try to make the world, because the world isn't like we want it to be, and we want to make the world like we want it to be. And we feel entitled. We go around trying to fix everybody else rather than fix ourselves. So that's something that I had spent a life doing. But if I put the folks out here and stuff that's wrong out here, I don't have to look as much as what at what's going on, what's hurting in here. And so I was forced to do that several years ago, and I got into therapy. Um, went to therapy for a long time. Um. But here's here's what I would say. I think that too many of us look outside of ourselves for healers. So physician heal thyself. So how does a scarred person who has no support besides Internet resources heal? Um, I would say that, number one, I did a video on this, my last video that I dropped on YouTube, um, I did this video where I talked about, you know, you're the expert on yourself. Now, you may not be the expert on how to sort yourself out, but you're the expert on the problem at the very least. <laughs> In other words, you know where it hurts. I quoted from the scriptures, there's a proverb that says, the heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. So the heart knows its own bitterness. You know what's wrong with you, just like I know what's wrong with me. You know what your problems are, just like I know what my problems are. In fact, I'm the expert on my problems. You're the expert on your problems. We're the expert on ourselves. But also, we are the only ones who can heal ourselves. And not every tool works for every problem or works for every situation. Now, since I mentioned the heart mass studies, something else that I studied years ago, when I was looking at this mind-body connection when I was earning my degrees and working on research for my thesis is the wisdom of the body. And this was something that was really foreign to me as a Christian because the body is bad. The flesh is evil. Um, and that's not really even a Christian thought. That's more platonic. Plato said, you know, the body is a tomb for the soul and whatever the case may be there. 
so it's Western platonic thought that the body is evil. But definitely I was taught, you know, flesh is bad, body is bad, appetites are bad, sex is bad. You know, I mean, I was taught all that stuff. So to listen to the wisdom of the body, and what do I mean by that? What I mean by that, it, it, oh, and so the studies show, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling all over the place. Um, the studies show that people who got in therapy, there was an experiment that, that was done in the 70s because they were trying to figure out which modality of therapy, is it behaviorism, is it psychodynamic, is it psychoanalytic, what is it, is it rational emotive therapy, what therapy model works the best. So they did this large experiment where they looked at outcomes, self-reported outcomes from therapy, trying to identify what are the key components of healing. And what they found really shocked and surprised them because it did not identify a school of thought. It identified a key characteristic about the person who was in therapy that became predictive to them down the road as to whether or not this person was going to improve or heal in therapy or not. And it was how in touch that person was with their bodies and how much they listened to their body for guidance and for wisdom. Say it again. It didn't matter. <clears throat> the therapy, the approach, the therapeutic relationship was important. That was one thing that was important, the, the kind of relationship you had built with your therapy, therapist and the therapeutic alliance. But the key indicator was how in touch they were and how much they were able to listen to their body. So <clears throat> that gut sense that's, that, you know, that tightening up that says, ugh, something's not right here. This doesn't feel like this is going to work for me. Um, listen to that. Listen to that. Listen to your intuition. When you're sorting through tools, when you're looking for tools or programs or things that you want to take to apply to yourself. And by the same token, if something relaxes, if something like lights up inside of you, you know, your, I used to call it your, your baby jumps, you know, like from Zachariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist and Mary and Jesus. When Mary, pregnant with Jesus comes into the presence of Elizabeth, Elizabeth's baby jumps. And there can just be this sort of kinesthetic feeling, this sort of body, bodily sensation. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that that's it, you know. So I would say listen to that. And then I would also say that almost all of these tools work. Almost all of them work. There's not one right tool for you. Now, I'm a little bit averse, and this is the irony of it, because I teach stuff like this on the Internet. I'm a little leery of going into, like, some guy on YouTube with no professional training whatsoever who's just espousing their own spiritual ideas or the latest spiritual ideas. Um... I'm leery of that. I'm, I'm leery of that. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of great tools. There is a lot of great information. So pick one and work it. The key is doing the work. The key isn't so much finding the right tool. The key is taking the tool and doing the work. Uh, for a lot of these, you know, stuff, like it doesn't matter. Like there's some, like some trauma. I work a lot with trauma and I have a lot of training in trauma. So there's, Trauma resolution 
tools that are based on um, gestalt therapy and Rogerian therapy. There's some based on psychodynamic or even psychoanalytic, like internal family systems. Um, there's neurolinguistic programming. There is EMDR. There's brain synchronization therapy. There's brain spotting therapy. There's cognitive behavioral therapy. There's somatic processing. And I've had training in all of those things. And they all work. They all work. So when I'm working with a client, it's figuring out what's going to work best for the uh, emotional freedom technique. Tapping works wonders. Um, they all are built underneath on the same basic principles. Kind of like they say, you know, like the Theosophical Society says, all the world's religions on the mystical level, they're all saying the same thing. So a lot of these tools that you can use to help resolve stuff, I see, you know, Angie says, uh, I dissociate a lot. So, yeah, if you dissociate a lot, there's unresolved trauma there. So some of these tools that are available to help you address trauma, just pick one, but do the work. Um, in other words, apply it over and over again. Sometimes, you know, we want to be one and done. Very seldom does that happen. Um Oftentimes, there's multiple applications that need to happen. I have seen one and done quite a bit, but you really need to have a very skilled, safe individual working with you pretty much to be one and done. So I'm understanding, you know, if, if for people out there that don't have the resources for good therapy, then take a tool and apply it and do it. Let's see. Getting the ego self out of the way of the higher self seems to be key. Finding method for that can be overwhelming. Yeah, Mark, that's that's interesting. Um I, I believe in the higher self. Uh certainly I have an understanding of the ego, but I have a completely different take on the ego. Um I don't I don't uh I don't subscribe to that. Uh that I have to get my ego out of the way at all. I, I think that that is actually and and again d- d- just to give you guys context, like, I'm not just up here parroting my ideas. So I got a hold, or, you know, just espousing my ideas, parroting, sorry. Um, I feel like I'm parroting because I feel like I repeat myself a lot. But let me, let me say this, Mark. Um, I got into Eckhart Tolle's books when they first came out. Um, I got The Power of Now when it was, you know, when it first came out back in the early 2000s. And then he followed up with a New World Coming. I got that one as soon as it was published. And I lived in that teaching um, more than 20 years ago. And it's funny if, if you go through our sermon archives, I preached it for two years almost. Um, I would just take principles from like the power of now and ego and the pain body and, and all of this stuff. And while it teaches mindfulness, so then when I got into psychology and counseling on a in higher education you know when I was working on my bachelor's and my master's I was like oh this is mindfulness like oh we've known about this forever or this is metacognition observing your thoughts Uh, the technical term for it is metacognition there have been papers written about metacognition for years this is something people have been doing in therapy for decades like this is nothing new it just hit pop culture 
with Eckhart Tolle and his books and really because Oprah Winfrey was promoting him. I did not, it's a helpful tool, but it is not the key. And too many people think it's the key. In fact, this whole let go of your ego, get out of your ego, dissolve your ego, get rid of your ego, makes you very susceptible to being taken advantage of. It makes you very susceptible to cult-like behaviors. It makes you very susceptible to getting sucked into a group and like some of these that we've been watching. And then, so no, I, I am of the persuasion you must have a very strong ego. It needs to be a healthy ego, but it needs to be a strong ego. And then it needs to be harmonized or in lockstep with your higher self. I do believe in the higher self. Your ego is to be in lockstep with your higher self. The two are to be conjoined. This is one time you can, uh, uh, you know, they're to be harmonized, they're to be congruent, they're to be walking together. How can two walk together unless they be in agreement, the scripture says. But you have to have a very strong ego. If you don't have a strong ego, your your relationships are going to be a mess. Because, and here's why. Because at the end of the day, the ego is a sense of self. It is your sense of self, bottom line. Ego is not pride. Ego is not being opinionated. Ego is not identification with the mind. It, it's none of those things. Those are tools. <laughs> so I realize I'm, I'm, I'm too invested in a thought. I'm too invested in an opinion. I'm too invested in an idea. Okay. Then I need to pull my energy out of that idea, but to totally divest of your mind is to leave you as open prey for anybody to come in and put their stuff in your mind. Because at the end of the day, you can't get away from a sense of self. At the end of the day, and I try to help people understand this too, and 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 I understand when we say oneness, I understand what we're saying. But the experience of oneness is not even a possibility because in order for there to be an experience, there has to be a reference point. And in order for there to be a reference point, there has to be separation. That's why we're in this world of polarity. You can't know cold without hot. You can't know light without darkness. You cannot know uh, night without day. You cannot know pleasure without suffering. You can't know compassion without selfishness. You see what I'm saying? So all knowledge, it, it, it requires polarity. So you can never ex- have the experience of oneness because the moment you have the experience of oneness, you've lost oneness because there's more than one thing. There's the experience and the experiencer. <laughs> so it's the same thing with ego. You, you can't, you can't, you, you're, you're going to have that sense of self. And people teach this deliberately. I mean, these are cult tactics. You got to get out of here. You go, there's nobody there. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you who, who there is nobody there with. I'm coming at this clinically, all right? You, you, you hear a bunch of stuff about narcissism and all that stuff on the Internet, and most of it's garbage. Ninety percent of it's total garbage. Um, clinically speaking, when a narcissist looks inside, there's nothing there. There isn't a there. There isn't a person there because their person, it comes from the myth of Narcissus. Narcissus looks at his reflection, falls in love with his reflection. So if people tell you there's nothing inside of you, I strongly push against that because, you know, my kids are very different and they manifested their character traits at a really, 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 really young age, really young age. And there's no way that I 
don't believe they were born with those, that they came with certain soul characteristics, karma, whatever you want to call it. So I don't believe we have to get the ego out of the way. I, I think believing that we have to get the ego out of the way is the problem. Now, let me come back to this, though. So the ego is the sense of self. So the Oracle of Delphi, you know, when you would go see the Oracle of Delphi, there was a sign over the top that said, know thyself. Well, you can't know thyself if you don't know an ego. Like, I don't even know what they're talking about when they talk about ego. Your ego is your sense of self. It's how you identify yourself. It's how you know yourself. It's your values. It's your ethics. It's your ideas. It's your roots. It's where you come from. And in order to relate to someone else, that has to be healthy. Because <laughs> if there's not two eyes, there is no relating that's going on. And so some of the, some of this teaching, I think, is narcissistic because to say that there's only one eye because we're all one, yikes. Well, then how do I relate to a thou? How do I relate to another? And that, and I can be tempted. Some people can be tempted. I mean, some people for that, that that's going to work for them. Okay, I'm one, so I'm going to be good to them because I'm being good to me. But that's selfish. I'm only being good to you because it's going to come back on me. Or I'm only treating you. Uh, you, you see how that's that in and of itself is kind of selfish and narcissistic. I prefer an ethic that says I am a uh, sentient being. I'm a point of consciousness. I am here to balance love with freedom. Uh, and try to find that balance and try to work that out. You are a sentient being just like me. And I honor you for who you are. And I want to get to know you for who you are. So, therefore, my ego needs to engage with your ego. So, again, it's not getting the ego out of the way. It's aligning ego with what's in the higher self to fulfill the purpose for this lifetime. That's what I think. The key is. So I go the opposite direction. <laughs> I go the opposite direction. Um, let's see. And, I, you know, people in this community don't like when I talk about that because I know it just goes contrary to so much what they've invested themselves in. Um, Andy says, I, I feel that ego is helpful just as there is good stress and bad stress. Yes. Um, Mark says, so more holistic approach to wholeness. Absolutely. Marie says, yes, I agree. That is still my experience. Um, our ego is the system of self essential to navigate the world. I love that. It says that's a Facebook user. For some reason, I can't see the names of Facebook users. I don't know why. Uh, ego is not bad in and of itself. Ego is one of the purposes of material reality. Absolutely. Randy says, I have thought of these things. Thanks. Another Facebook user says, preach. Angie says, it really is fascinating where we are and what we are doing. Um, someone else says, I, I appreciate your perspective on ego. Yeah. Um, that's a tough one, man, because it, so many people define ego in different ways. They, a lot of people have negative connotations to it, like you're just a, an asshole. You know, um, you're arrogant, you're opinionated, you think highly of yourself. Um, I think that's a misnomer. I think, you know, we can call it arrogance. You, you're an asshole. Um, <laughs> we don't have to call it ego. Um, and then it gets really weird in the Eastern traditions, in my opinion, from what I understand of them. 
Uh, and I could be very wrong because I'm not an expert in any way, shape, or form on the Eastern traditions. But, um, you know, disbanding your ego, dissolving your ego is the secret and the key to to oneness. Um, yeah, I've been there, done that 20 years ago, seen the fruit of it. Don't like it. It's not for me. It may be a path for some of you, not my path for sure. Um, to me, it's just religion repackaged and sold again. It's just, um, but I'm lucky because in the psychological world, we define ego as your sense of self. And so a lot of work that we do in therapy and stuff is to help you develop a strong and healthy sense of self so that you can go out and develop strong and healthy life out there. Like if you're not strong and healthy in here, you can't be strong and healthy out there. Um, <clears throat> Joyce says, my thoughts, I was told by my higher self that I was a spark for the divine. We are all individuals, but part of the one source. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with that. Um, I think where it gets lost is the, for me, is um, I think that that spark is to become its own sun, so to speak, uh, or its own star. In other words, I, I think those those sparks are meant to become their own fires, whereas most New Age mystical teaching, most Eastern teaching is the spark needs to get back in the fire. Um, and so therefore lose its individuality. <clears throat> and, uh, I don't, I don't think that's what, go, but that's, I do not think that's what's going on, but definitely affirm the idea of the one spark from the source. I just think that we're supposed to take that spark and develop it and raise it rather than try to reunite with the fire. Cause then what's the point? What's the point of any of it? I mean, if it's all one and we were all one before, then wildest. Um, so it says this conversation is about dissolving the egos of self never sat well with me. Like in the way you were talking about being in tune with your body. Yeah. There is a difference between ego and asshole. Someone says, <laughs> I think Buddhists have misunderstood Buddha as much as Christians have misunderstood Jesus. Mark says, would you say ego and personality are closely related? Yes, I would say they are closely related. Um, again, ego, if you, if you, you can make it really simple. If you just define ego as your sense of self, your experience of yourself, what you're aware of about yourself. Um, so that includes personality, all of it. Um, so he says one jewel with the infinite facets. Um, and I'm sure, so there's all kinds of different ways of trying to understand oneness. I guess I get annoyed because, and I'm just being honest, I'm just being transparent here. So if you, if you guys pick up a vibe from me when I'm talking about some of this stuff, I get annoyed that, and it's because I did this. I did this in Christianity. Like I just assumed my revelation was the right revelation. And I had so much zeal. It, it, it never, I was never an angry preacher. I was never a Bible thumper, but I was a very zealous preacher because I was very excited about what I was learning and getting what I thought would help people. And so I think most people in the light working community and the new age community, the spiritual consciousness communities are like that. They're zealous for their message. In other words, it's coming from a good place energetically. It's not intentionally trying to violate someone's boundaries or control someone or cause harm or damage in any way, shape, or form. What I find a little bit annoying is that too many of us in this community make assumptions 
that are ontological to the world or we make assumptions about the nature of the world or the nature of reality or the goals or the purpose. So there can be this assumption of oneness. Um, and I share that assumption on a certain level, but it has complexity. Or we share assumptions that, you know, we need to ascend. Uh, maybe we don't need to ascend. Maybe the whole thing is not to get back up there. Maybe the whole thing is to get what's up there in the higher realms and regions of the spirit down into here so that we can produce change in ourselves by becoming the change we want to see in the world. You see what I'm saying? But we make these assumptions. Like, I'll, I'll give you one. Uh, I met, I met with somebody. I, I went through a health crisis a couple of years ago, and I met with somebody who was part of this community. And <laughs> I was dealing with chronic pain at the time. And they tell me, oh, well, just go to one of Joe Dispenza's events, and you'll get healed. And I'm like, do you know what Joe Dispenza does in his events? Like, I couldn't sit through one of Joe Dispenza's events because I'm in too much stinking pain, <laughs> first of all. But not everybody at a Joe Dispenza event gets healed, not even close. Um, but you see that kind of brushing off, no compassion. We're talking about compassion earlier. Just, oh, you know, out of excitement, well, go here and you can get better. I think there was compassion in the sense that I want you to feel better, but... <laughs> but here's the one that really got me. Um, she had gotten into A Course in Miracles and was really, really excited about A Course in Miracles. Now, again, I started on this journey in 2000, man. So I read A Course in Miracles again around 2003, 2004. I tried to read it again in like 2017, 2018, and it just didn't resonate with me. I would sit there and have to read a page seven or eight times not because it was so complicated and I was trying to get my mind around what was being said, but because I found it so boring, <laughs> frankly, and lacking in, it did not inspire me. It did not call to me. But she had joined this Course in Miracles group. Now watch what she says to me. She says, oh, well, it's a requirement for all of us. I'm like, what? Yeah, you have to pass it to go to the next stage. You have to learn it and pass it to go to the next stage. And so as I kept inquiring, so what she was saying was, if you don't get it in this lifetime, you have to go into Course in Miracles. You have to get it in this lifetime. You have to get it right. And if you don't get it right in this lifetime, you can't go to the next level. I'm pretty sure I've been watching that on these shows, documentaries about cults. And if you don't get it in this life, you have to get it in the next life. Like, why does it have to be one thing or one tool or one path? Do you see what I'm saying? And so that's what I get annoyed at. I get annoyed at the, my way is the one way. My way is the right way. If you don't do it my way, you're wrong. Um, if you don't see it exactly the same way I see it, you're wrong. Uh, there's an ontology to these things. There's a nature to these things. And I've got it. I've got the revelation. You don't have the revelation. Um, that kind of stuff just annoys me, it, it, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous because think about that. Think about what this person is being told. You have to master this teaching. You have to learn this teaching and you have to graduate to the next level. And unless you do it, you'll have to do it in the next life. Um, man, just some bad stuff.
Marietta says, my question has been, what's ascension and why is it so important? Um, so I'll finish with this. Um, great question, Marietta. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. At the end of the day, um, I mean, if you look at it literally, ascension is, you know, levitation. Right. You ascend up a flight of stairs. You ascend in a elevator. You uh, you ascend when an aircraft is taking off or you descend when it's coming down. Right. So that's the meaning of the word. And this is another problem that can be cultish is when we take words and we redefine them in ways that the general population does not agree with because we create our own language that way. We create our own ideas. And by doing so, I mean, you're going to do that to a certain degree. I'm not like, this isn't black and white. This isn't all or nothing. This is on a spectrum. We're all going to do that. We're all going to have our own language for stuff, but it can, uh, it can become problematic in that it can create an us, them, type of thing. So first off, it's a metaphor. And then secondly, we have to understand where it comes from. And I'm willing to bet that it's rooted in the teachings of theosophy and Madame Blavatsky. A lot of what we have in the New Age movement goes back to theosophy and Madame Blavatsky. And, and then there are some unsavory characters in there as well. Um, and Madame Blavatsky really, her teachings are rooted in the Kabbalah. And the Kabbalah is based on this idea of a fall. Um, it really does come from Judeo-Christian ideas of the Garden of Eden and the fall of man. And so because we are fallen and of this nature that is ignorant or lost or dark or twisted, then we have to reverse the effects of the fall. And so when we do the work to reverse the effects of the fall, then we are therefore ascending. So it's metaphor, right? So Adam fell, Adam's got to get back. It's this idea of getting back to the Garden of Eden, or some will say, like someone pointed out here, um, to ascend back to oneness. Um, yeah, I addressed that, I think, when I was talking about the divine spark. Um, and that's the idea in Kabbalah. You're ascending back into... Um, it's really complicated philosophically, the idea of the fall. That's what I think it meant. That's where it, that's where it originates. But then I think we take these words and we trivialize them... <laughs> And I'll bet you if you were to ask five different people in the spiritual community that talk about ascension, what ascension is, you probably get five different answers. <laughs> um, but it's a metaphor. So you could use it for, you know, um, <clears throat> like I'll use it, I'll give you a personal example. I'll use it and say, I know when I'm in a higher vibration. Because I feel lighter. I feel more spontaneous. I feel more connected to my body. 
I feel more congruent. I feel more at peace. I've, you see what I'm saying? So as opposed to feeling anxious and worried and stressed, and I feel heavy, lighter. So again, metaphors, heavier, lighter, ascended, descended. Um, what's bad is when we take those things and we make them ontological, the nature of things. So, all right, gang. Um, this was fun. Maybe I'll do this more. Uh, thank you guys for the engagement. It made it so much easier for me um, to uh, hopefully create some positive uh, dialogue. I'll take this last one from Mark. Does ascension connect with atonement from a theological perspective? Ooh, wow. Yeah, it does. I mean, if you're looking at it strictly biblically, look at Ephesians 2 and Colossians 1. I'll just leave you with that. Uh, just Google Ephesians 2 and read Ephesians 2 and Colossians 1, and Paul connects ascension with atonement in those two passages. Um, all right, gang. Thanks, everybody, and I will be with you. I'm going to try to do one tomorrow night uh, just for the New Day Global Facebook users. So if you're on YouTube, uh, if you haven't subscribed to the channel, you know, all the stuff, um, hitting all the buttons and all that stuff. And then in my bio, there's a link to the Facebook group if you want to join that. Um, it's a private Facebook group, and I'm going to try and do something tomorrow at 6 Mountain Time just for that group. So thanks, guys. Appreciate it, and I will see you next week.